Hello, and welcome to Small Black Birds. I'm AJ. And in this episode, you will hear about a woman who's on a mission to change the world before the world changes. Climate change is no longer tomorrow's problem. Extreme weather and rising temperatures are here now, disrupting the natural ecosystems that sustain our planet's life. And the longer we wait to act, the more we will lose. Confronting this emergency will take more than swapping light bulbs or using paper straws. It will require changing everything. And few people today are willing to take on the big issues as fearlessly as Naomi Klein. A journalist, author, and mother of a young child, Klein is a leading voice against capitalism's negative impact on human life and the environment. For over two decades, Klein has worked to expose the lies and myths that we hear all the time, that renewable energy can't replace fossil fuels, that the free market knows best, or that our problems are too big to solve. Now Klein is supporting the next generation of climate change activists, like Greta Thunberg, who demand immediate action to build a more equitable and sustainable future. How do we change without changing? And the answer is, we don't. We actually have to change how we live. In September 2011, Naomi Klein was arrested outside of the White House. She had been one of thousands of people calling on then-President Obama to block construction of the Keystone XL pipeline, a massive energy project that would transport crude oil from Canada all the way to Texas. She hadn't planned on getting arrested that day, but said she felt compelled to join the protest after listening to several people become emotional while explaining how their lives and land would be ruined by the pipeline. It may have been her first time being arrested, but Klein has been on the front lines of the most important issues for over 20 years. She was instrumental in developing the divestment movement, which has already encouraged governments, schools, and businesses to withdraw over $8 billion of financial support from the fossil fuel industry. She also helped organize the LEAP Manifesto, a bold new approach to address environmental and social problems made worse by the climate emergency. And back in 1999, her book No Logo was among the earliest warning signs about the evolution of consumer capitalism, in which billion-dollar companies no longer simply sold products like shoes or drinks, but aggressively targeted young people to turn them into lifelong, unpaid brand ambassadors. It was a period where a lot was changing in the corporate world and you had the first kind of full-blown lifestyle brands, which is an idea that we all take for granted now. But, but these were companies that for the first time were declaring that their business model was not to sell products, but to sell ideas, a lifestyle, a sense of belonging that they could then extend into kind of self-enclosed branded cocoons. So they could sort of sell everything as long as it was branded with this uh, logo. And so Nike was really the first one to do this. And the main thing that I learned when I was researching 
No Logo was that there was a relationship between this aggressive kind of marketing that was constantly trolling youth culture to find the most cutting edge ideas, to get ads into places that had never had ads before, like schools. No Logo was published on the cusp of a new phase of globalization in which companies like Nike, Starbucks, and H&M pursued even bigger profits by trampling over workers' rights in the countries where they outsourced their labor needs. 20 years later, the abusive workplace conditions that were widespread at factories and sweatshops in Bangladesh and Vietnam are now popping up in the U.S. and U.K. Amazon, a company worth over $1.7 trillion, recently apologized for denying claims that its workers urinate in bottles after several investigations found overworked warehouse employees and delivery drivers don't receive enough time off during their shifts. But Amazon isn't the only offender. Employees at Walmart, America's largest private employer with over 1.5 million workers, say the company was slow to provide personal protection equipment and refused to tell them when their coworkers became sick. To cover up their failings, both Walmart and Amazon spent millions of dollars on expensive advertising campaigns to counter claims that they didn't do enough to keep their workers safe. It was culturally shocking for people to discover that these companies like Nike or Disney, who were spending so much money putting out images of themselves that were very progressive, or in the case, you know, Disney's case, very family friendly, that, you know, you pull back the curtain and wait a minute, it's, you know, in, in some cases, children or people just a little bit out of being ch children, you know, who are making these products under really abusive conditions. And so when that was exposed, it was a scandal. And, you know, 20 years later, I think people take it for granted that almost all the products in our life are made under conditions that are, are pretty dubious, you know. We've got electronic factories in China that have suicide nets to catch people when they commit suicide because they're so desperate on the job. So, yeah, I think it's one of the toughest things to think about, you know, when I think about what has changed since No Logo is the sense of shock that I was sort of tracking, like, oh my God, I can't believe that these Nike running shoes are made by 18-year-olds in Indonesia who, uh, you know, are sleeping in cramped dormitories and are, and not getting paid, you know, for their overtime or having to pee in bottles under their sewing machines. Or, you know, all of these scandals would come out and they were genuinely scandals and there were, you know, movements responding to them. And I think people's sense of shock and outrage about this has really been dulled. Klein wasn't always a crusader. As a teenager in the 1980s, she loved buying makeup and in her high school yearbook was selected as the most likely to be in jail for stealing peroxide. Describing herself as obsessed with fashion and wearing popular brands, she worked at a store at the local mall because she thought it had the best logo. She also didn't care much for politics, which put her at odds with her parents, both of whom were progressive professionals that were socially engaged. But everything changed for a then 17-year-old Klein after her mom had a stroke. Instead of heading off for college, Klein spent the year caring for her mother. She would later enroll at the University of Toronto, where she began writing and would become editor of the student newspaper. Though she found a place at school as a budding writer, she dropped out again to care for her ailing mother and then to support herself by writing for newspapers and magazines. 
Soon after, she started the research that would become the foundation for No Logo. I was born in Canada, I was born in Montreal, and my parents are Americans. My parents were peace activists in, in the 1960s, and my mother is a documentary filmmaker, now retired. She worked for the National Film Board of Canada at the first women, women's film studio, so she made films really for the feminist movement. So I grew up, yeah, with political parents. My father worked in the Canadian healthcare system. He was involved in doing things like bringing midwives into hospitals and big advocate for natural childbirth. Um, I kind of grew up between worlds with their values, I suppose, but, you know, going to regular schools in the 1980s, so I sort of felt very pulled between the culture of the 1980s, which was very shiny and appealing to me, and my home life, where my parents were saying, why do you want to hang out with your friends at the mall? What is there at the mall? Why would you ever want to do something like that? <laughs> so I don't know, maybe that's why I wrote No Logo in my 20s. The success of No Logo allowed Klein to turn her gaze toward other important but often overlooked issues, like disaster capitalism. Early in the morning of August 29, 2005, Hurricane Katrina struck the Gulf Coast, and when the storm made landfall near New Orleans, it brought sustained winds up to 140 miles per hour. While the storm itself did a great deal of damage, its aftermath was catastrophic. Levee breaches led to massive flooding, and hundreds of thousands of people in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama were displaced from their homes. But rather than rebuild New Orleans to let the thousands of people return to their homes, hordes of private contractors descended on the flooded city to find ways to profit from the disaster. It was a pattern Klein had seen before in disaster zones around the world. She used the term shock doctrine to describe the brutal tactic of using the public's disorientation following a collective shock, whether from war, terrorist attacks, market crashes, or natural disasters, to push through private projects that had little or no public benefit. A similar approach was used to increase domestic spying on Americans after the attacks of 9-11, to bail out private banks with public money following the 2008 financial crisis, and is happening right now with the world still reeling from the pandemic. This is a, a clear strategy that we've seen again and again by you know, wealthy players in the aftermath of disasters. I began the shock doctrine with Hurricane Katrina, um, which was when I first started writing about climate change. When I was in New Orleans, it was still, uh, still partially underwater, but there were already real estate speculators talking about what an opportunity it was to get rid of public housing projects and build condominiums. And a lot of that happened in the aftermath. It was used by educational entrepreneurs who wanted to change public schools into charter schools. And pretty soon New Orleans had the most privatized, charter-heavy school system in the United States. Turning her attention to climate change, Klein has been calling on governments and companies to limit carbon emissions, insisting that the small changes individuals have been encouraged to make are not enough to counter the effects of industrial capitalism. While we should all try to do our part for a better tomorrow, the blame lays squarely with the hundred or so companies that produce more than 70% of the world's greenhouse gases related to fossil fuels. No amount of recycling will offset that. In her book, This Changes Everything, Klein argues that the world can no longer survive under the current free market capitalist regime 
that celebrates greed and destabilizes the planet for the benefit of a few billionaires. So a lot of what I'm doing in this book is trying to make visible the economic systems born of the particular kind of capitalism we've had since the Reagan era, which has been all about deregulation, privatization, and venerating the individual consumers, equating uh, shopping with democracy and the good life. And, and that has produced an extremely accelerated culture, which then people point to and say, well, it's just human nature that we can't deal with a crisis like, like climate change because, you know, clearly we are just too selfish, too individualistic, think too short term, and this requires us to have a longer time frame. It requires us to, you know, put the collective good ahead of something that you might just want right now to, you know, to satisfy an individual urge. And, and so there's been a lot written that has made this human nature argument about why we will never respond to this crisis. And what I find when I'm talking about, you know, what we need to do in the face of this crisis, you know, I find that the biggest obstacle that we're up against is not climate change denial, which is definitely on the wane, and it's not the lack of technology or, or an understanding of what needs to be done. It is really the sense of doom that we, as human beings, are incapable of doing the things that are necessary. Refusing to wait on governments and businesses to do the right thing, Klein encourages everyone to lend their voice to the climate change movement. Throughout the last 150 years of America's history, all the major legal and social transformations were a consequence of social movements and protests, including the fight for civil and women's rights. Now Klein is supporting the next generation of young activists, like Greta Thunberg, who experiences the harms caused by the climate emergency firsthand and are part of a growing movement that refuses to be silenced. I also think Greta is an absolutely remarkable young woman. I have so much respect for her. I think she is a prophetic voice. You know, I think there's something about Greta and that she so clearly is not performing for anyone. She's not looking for anyone to like her. We live in a culture where everybody is constantly sort of performing a version of themselves. Everybody is interested in being famous. Everybody is interested in promoting themselves. Greta could not be less interested in this, and I can tell you I know her. I mean, she is just so 100% focused on the science. And, you know, she's talked about how, you know, having been diagnosed with Asperger's, you know, she says, I'm not interested in your social games as somebody on the autism spectrum. And so I think there's something about how uninterested Greta is in our opinion of her that makes her a very trusted messenger for a lot of people. Greta, Greta is part of an amazing movement and she would be the first person to say, it's not about me, it's about, you know, it's about a movement of young people that's coming together. Disruptive on a scale like never before, the pandemic has shown that we are capable of making and embracing change. We have not yet emerged from it, but when we do, we will need big ideas to address the widespread inequality and economic hardships that have been exacerbated by the pandemic. It will take bold leadership to acknowledge that many of society's problems, like racial and gender injustice, economic insecurity, and the climate crisis, are interconnected and that we can't solve one problem without addressing the others. What we need to be doing is investing in low carbon sectors. We need to be looking at what actually improves quality of life and investing in access to nature, 
recreation, giving people shorter work weeks, really investing in well-being and the care economy and moving away from, from endless consumption. When Klein wrote No Logo, she was a 29-year-old living by herself. Now, as a mother of a child under 10, she constantly finds herself thinking about the planet he and others his age will inherit. That is why she is one of the most outspoken supporters of a Green New Deal, a comprehensive plan that will create new jobs in green infrastructure and renewable energy and transition the economy off fossil fuels and toward a more equitable world. After years of examining the magnitude of the problems, Klein believes only this kind of aggressive, grassroot-led action has a chance of rousing us to fight for our lives while there is still time. We need to recognize that, that a lot of the estimates about when things are going to start to get really, really serious have underestimated the speed with which things start to unravel, right? We weren't expecting to lose Arctic sea ice as rapidly as we're losing it. Let's remember that we just, September is, was the hottest September on record. July was the hottest month ever recorded. June was the hottest June ever recorded. It's happening really, really fast. I would say in the time period of children alive on this planet, we would be seeing absolutely catastrophic levels of warming under a business as usual model. And when you start costing out what it would mean to you know, lose New York City or Shanghai, I mean, there literally is not enough money on the planet to cost it out. So I can make an argument to you that it's a bargain to invest in a Green New Deal, which is, yes, expensive, but compared to what we would pay later, it's much cheaper. But there's something also kind of morally reprehensible about making a just a financial argument for this, because we're talking about hundreds of millions of lives here that would be lost if we do not embrace the speed of change that is required and the depth of change that is required. So yes, it's expensive. It is also, in my view, an absolutely moral imperative. And doing nothing is even more expensive. Thanks for listening to this episode. Naomi Klein is not only one of the most important voices out there, but she's also one of my favorite writers. Uh, you know, No Logo had an incredibly profound influence on my life, and it really helped me see kind of past all the marketing gimmicks that we are constantly bombarded with every day. And so I'm super happy anytime I get to share her wisdom and wit with other people. I also want to dedicate this episode to my 15-year-old niece, because just like Naomi, she's an incredible person with so much talent and ability. And I cannot wait to see how she and her generation disrupt everything to fix the mess that they were left with. Did I get this story right? Let me know at smallblackbirdspodcast at gmail.com. Want to protect your right to protest? Check out rightsanddissent.org. Stay safe and talk with you soon. <laughs>